Now the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. And here we go. All right, all right, all right. Gentlemen, start your Greetings and welcome to a Monday edition of the Shotgun Start. It is November 30th. Andy, how are we doing? Brendan, I am doing wonderful. How are you? I'm well. I'm doing well. Browns just won. It's a victory Monday. Uh, Bears are playing tonight. You said you're hopeful or optimistic about Mitch Trubisky, something like that. Not right? I mean, not really, but... I do, I, I, you sounded who knows, buoyant, Who knows puppy. what's going to happen? All right. Peppy Peter. Well, <laughs> Peppy Andy, enthusiastic Andy. All right. Well, just as an order of business here, just to clarify, we had a Sunday episode, November 29th, that discussed the match, discussed what the strategic alliance t- between the PGA Tour, European Tour, more of our regular show. News. show news of the day. Just a bunch order, of news. Order golf stuff for the day. So you, you talking about Dick Bland's finish in South Africa, things like that, you know, regular show. This Monday episode will be a spotlight on Mac O'Grady, Phil McGleno, a.k.a. Mac O'Grady, Philip McClelland O'Grady, Mac O'Grady, as he's most famously and infamously known. HPP uh, Fansworth, Wack O'Grady, Dial-A-Shot. Dial-A-Shot. There's a lot of nicknames in there. Uh, so we will be doing, you know, one of the all-time characters. Maybe not... Doesn't have the record of resume. We're not going to be doing the Hall of Fame debate at the end of this one like we would with Mark O'Mara, maybe. He, but, he uh, might belong in some sort of golf Hall of Fame. Maybe not yeah, for his play, on... but all-time personalities. He's first team, first ballot Hall of Famer. And you never know. Maybe the Morad Project, <laughs> his five-work tome, will eventually see the light of day, <laughs> and it will change the game forever, and he'll make the Hall of Fame for that. I, I, we don't know yet. You can't close the book on it, uh, literally. Um, so this, uh, this spotlight is brought to you by Rucket, our good friends at Rucket. You know who they are. You know what they do. They've been riding with us now for a year, full year mm-hmm. almost. Um, they came on board here at Q4, bought up a couple extra spotlights, they so wanted to this... make these possible for you. They they loved these, and they said, hey, we want you to do extra episodes where you neglect your family for days days on end researching. <laughs> neglect is an appropriate term. My wife is <laughs> breathing down my neck here as we Sunday afternoon record this. But the two they ended up getting, Frank Stranahan and Mac O'Grady, I wonder if they thought they were buying the, you know, the irreverent sort of whack job series of this uh, of the spotlights, but uh, they are at rucket.com slash, slash shotgun start. We have our own URL now. That's where you go. You enter a contest, put your name, email in. You uh, are then entered into a drawing for two two at home driving range setups, nets, mats, two hundred eight dollar value. And if you don't win, you automatically get a twenty percent off coupon courtesy of Rucket. Uh, that's rucket.com slash shotgun start. Now is the time to sort of be transitioning into whatever at home setup, at home practice, at home, you know, 
sort of parlor game you want to set up, now is the time to be doing that as the cold weather descends. And it's a good gift. It's a good gift to ask for. There you go. 20% off coupon. Rucket.com slash shotgun start. Thanks to them for uh, sponsoring these spotlights. Yeah. And the ongoing support of the show. Yeah. Seriously. They've been good. And you guys have support showed up for them too as well. All right. Macro Grady, where do you want to start? There's so much to you, you. You were claiming you had more on him than Ernie Els. Maybe we got deep into it Saturday night, I, reading up on him. I had some. Well, yeah. I had some. Uh, some Smith Devereaux, and I just was down in the basement reading yeah. reading tales of Macro Grady. There's all kinds of things to start. So you know, just nuts and bolts of Macro Grady. Phil McGlenno, uh, He was born in Minneapolis. Moved to L.A. when he was ten. He was the youngest of five boys. Um, Mom died when he was 16. He had a kind of a tough upbringing. We'll get into all of that. Uh, He was a a star athlete. He played quarterback on the football team, was a baseball player. Um, He played golf at Rancho Park as well. You know, the the nuts and bolts, the things you're going to hear all the time about Phil McGlenno, Mac O'Grady, he went to PGA Tour qualifying school 17 times beginning in 1971 before eventually getting his card in 1982 in November of 1982. So he went to seven, 17 times and there's a long journey along the way, which we will get into shortly. But once he was on tour, he became quickly renowned as, you know, arguably the best ball striker, the best swinger of the golf club on the PGA tour. He had, I mean, Johnny Miller called him, dial a shot like he could hit anything he he could just you know there were tales of him being able to just hit it onto like sewer caps from 100 yards away like just an unbelievable golf swing uh always struggled with the putter ambidextrous he uh he could play he he was a a professional playing right-handed but also a scratch playing left-handed and another lore of of Phil McGlenno, Mac O'Grady, is that he attempted and petitioned for his amateur status as a lefty. He wanted to play in yep. amateur tournaments as a left-hander. Um, also wanted to play a two-man event, tried to the get Chrysler. into a Chrysler in Michigan. So he wanted to enter as righty and lefty. So he would be the two-man team himself, playing both righty and lefty. You know, he's got a, a number... like. The, Look, it's crazy enough. He he swung from T to green one way, you know, with right hand. Then gets up and puts left handed. You know, that's that's pretty intense. But just attempting to play these two man tournaments as himself, professionally, both righty and lefty. Attempting to play as an amateur at events as a lefty. Uh, it's just it's kind of astounding. And, and you know, like his. Left-handed swing was thought to be a model, almost like a mirror image, right? The, I think Azinger and one of them, your guy, Azinger was like just sort of encap- captivated by it. Like could not believe how mirror images they were when he flipped over and started swinging. Yeah, you know, he uh, uh, he attempted, he, he retired early because of a back injury, a spinal yeah. disorder. I'm, I'm not even going to try yeah. and pronounce it. The the word is so long that the condition um, he so he had to retire because of that. But then he found out he figured out quickly that it didn't hurt to swing left handed. So then he attempted to come back as a lefty and he actually attempted to, you know, enter a PGA Tour tournament. But he wanted to enter under Mac O'Grady, the second. 
because he he said it was a he was a new golfer as a lefty. <laughs> so, but they they wouldn't give him his past status as the second. So he dropped it and entered as Mac O'Grady, the first, you know, or senior. Right, right. Uh, there's all sorts of. T- I mean, he allegedly hit a 290 in the air, swing righty, but 270 lefty. Uh, the one club he set the course record both, you know, as a righty and the shot what, like 62 as a righty, and then came back like a week later, shot 65 uh, as a lefty. So he was truly, you know, I think a lot of professional golfers can be pretty adequate uh, from their opposite side, right? A, a lot of them are, they're just really exceptional athletes and, and skilled in that way. But I mean, he's setting course records from both sides. It, it, his was another level. And I think a lot of it, sort of originates with this um, devotion to every aspect of the swing, right? Almost a man, like an obsessive devotion and under trying to understand it. You know, there was a lot of it based in the golfing machine and mechanical and scientific approaches, but lots of common uh, words with Bryson. There's a lot of different, yeah. Overlaps with words like Stranahan talking about being 120, 130 and getting thick. This is a, this is a little bit on the science side with, with the overlaps of Bryce and and really, I don't know your mouth starting to run and using a lot of big words and maybe it not always coming out uh, legibly, uh, intelligibly. So, so um, um, he won twice on tour. He won the 1986 Greater Hartford Open, and then he won the subsequent 87 Tournament of Champions. So Lacosta. The TOC, La Costa. Some legit wins. Barely. We'll, we'll get into that. Barely. <laughs> Barely. The soft greens almost send his putter yips <laughs> off into the, into the ocean. Soft greens did not kind of put his brain on the fritz. Before, so. before his win in 86, I, I saw a quote of like, I haven't won anything since like the early 70s in junior yeah. golf days. Since he was a, yeah, like, yeah. Never won. That's the thing. He he was like, you know, the Johnny Miller in awe, saying he could dial up, he can do anything. But like, he didn't win. He never won. And most of it attributable to that whole putting thing. Uh, you know, he putted left-handed. Many people saw that as a sign of his. You know, he can't putt right. If you guys flip into, from righty to lefty, there's a reason for it. And, and you know, he. Still wasn't great when he was hitting left, uh, putting left. Um, you know, he, he it was a short career, so he's full time on tour from from eighty three to eighty nine. But his star burned bright then. He was a fan favorite. They loved him. Well, yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, some of it has to do with the rebellious nature. I mean, he called the commissioner. He, he, <laughs> Called the commissioner Hitler, or made a true comparison with Hitler, a thief. Uh, uh, later, a thief I watched with capital with T. A, Dean Beeman. Now, I watched an interview with Roy Firestone where he was clear to point out that the Beeman to Hitler comparison was more on the totalitarianism <laughs> front, not the mass murdering thing. You know, the whole genocide. Wanted to clarify that <laughs> in the TV interview. So yeah, that that kind of led to maybe a little bit of his popularity, the whole rebelling against the rules and authority and all that stuff. So all right, should we career, should we uh, dive in? Yeah, let's dive in. Let's dive in. So uh, he he's born this family, rough family, uh, rough, 
brothers get arrested at a young age when he's a young age they beat him i saw an interview with his older brother where he talked about they hit they hit phil they you know it was not an easy upbringing for mr mcgleno um but all all the while he becomes like addicted to sports and he becomes a you know just kind of a, a legend around the neighborhood in in la um he's great athlete he plays his first round of golf at Rancho Park, pitch and putt, putt which is still there. Wonderful bo- yep. place to go, you know. If you're into smoking weed, go smoke some weed and play the pitch and putt. That's what most of the regulars there do. It'll take, <laughs> really? All it'll right. take you about six hours to play nine holes, but, you know, <laughs> it's not about the golf. But anyways, McGleno, he made a hole one this first round. But with two yes. mulligans. It was a five. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. First round ever, though. It's still pretty impressive. And I just would like to um, put out there, we there's going to be a ton of source material. There are two wonderful yeah. profile pieces. One, an SI feature from Steve Wolf, mm-hmm. and then a Golf Digest uh, feature uh, from... I can't. Kevin Cook. Kevin Cook. Late late nineties is published in Digest at that point. Ninety eight, I want to say. And Kevin Cook is is republished recently as part of Digest anniversary. Now, so. it, important to note, O'Grady put a a media embargo on all all media after the SI piece. And Steve Wolf, yeah. nineteen eighty four. Steve <laughs> Wolf. That there's a lot of. He's the guy that. Pissed off MJ, right? MJ said he would never talk to Sports Illustrated again. Of course, that was more of the headline, right? The the Baggett Michael, right? When he was playing baseball. And that was infamously why, you know, Michael Jordan never talked to Sports Illustrated again. So so he he put an embargo on media after that. And then he was irate, called Golf Digest numerous times, refuting every aspect of the Golf Digest article. There's a lot of that just... I mean, things happen. He says they don't happen, right? Or, or like he he's always quarreling about how something was portrayed, or how you know, or outright contesting the veracity of things. In general, know, he's a walking evil. controversy. Yeah, or right, right, but not not a big fan of of talking to the media, and still to this day is sort of reckless and hard to find. Um, you have anything else on his early life? Yeah. I think the the big thing. So it's it's you're talking about a walking controversy, the quarrels like it, it. The origin story of it is like he comes from a rough, rough background, right? Where it's probably going to be hard to trust, going to be hard to like, uh, you know, they're they're hard to kind of take authority with, you know, sitting down. Um, you know, got the crap kicked out of him. He had he was the youngest of five boys, had a twin sister, had another sister, and he talks about his his brothers were all into drugs drug dealers you know the one ran into a police car with thousands of dollars worth of drugs crashed into a police car they went to prison one died he said drugs had to so he comes from little um and and his dad he had no relationship with his dad his dad you know it claims you know he hit his kids that that's in the kevin cook article um and violence you know trickled down to all the other brothers so it comes from he had this really strong connection to his mom, right? This devotion to his mom, Patricia, which is why he loved Rancho so much because it was on Patricia Avenue is the name of the uh, mm-hmm. name of the street where Rancho is. And that's where he made his pro debut, a PGA Tour debut when he got his card. 
But his mom passed away from an aneurysm suddenly when he was 16 and in high school. So like just a rough go of it really early on. They lived in like a cramped apartment. His dad worked for Hughes Aircraft, I want to say. It was just, it was a, a, a tough, tough upbringing. Did you see the the thing about his his running when he was young? Yeah, he would run. He would just kind of like, I mean, you're getting out of this apartment. He would just run forever, right? Yeah. He, he didn't have my knees, I guess. He would run like 14 miles up and down to Santa Monica back. One time he ran like 110 miles. He just ran to San Diego, right? Yeah. Uh, he just... They said he was the original crazed jogger of Southern California. <laughs> and then Rancho, I love the the... The images of him in Rancho, Gary McCord was like a young Southern California, another kind of odd job, right? An oddball. And they were sort of found companionship in that. And he talks about the images of, of McGleno then, Phil McGleno showing up in short shorts, a tank top and a cowboy hat. And that's how he would play all the time at, at uh, Rancho. So. Yeah. Um, so McGleno turns pro at age 17 or actually okay. 20 at 20. 1971, like Santa Monica Junior College, but that was it. Yeah, just for like a spell. So never really had a home. I mean, let's let's put it that way. So he he uh, this guy Walter Kelly or Keller, who's a golf shop owner and patriarch of amateur golf in L.A. uh, He got a group of wealthy investors together from Riviera and Bel Air to sponsor him. Um, Yep. So he had he had been caddying for these guys at at the clubs, you know, since he was young, and uh, you know, they they kind of you know put this money together because this guy was so talented. You know, everybody looked right. at him like this guy's going to be the next superstar on tour. Um, and uh, you know, it, this was the first uh, first real big relationship that soured on on uh, Mac. So yeah, the the Keller guy, he had some weight, right? Yeah. Like he had the connections with Bel Air, Riviera. He about, he, I think he just taught Amy Alcott, kind of got her off into the pro ranks, and like could have paved the. I think he got he ended up getting him a junior membership at Riv yeah. at one point. To, like like pulled some weight in L.A. to get him going. I think that, Dean Martin was one of his investors, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah. I want to say like Glenn Campbell, like some. There's been a lot of guys that tried to back him, and then it went bad. But yeah, there were a couple of famous Riviera uh, entertainment types that backed him too. So in his he, early twenties, he got McGlenno got O'Grady got wrapped up in this mistaken identity, uh, like in a theft case, but his identity yeah. was mistaken. So, you know, the charges were all dropped uh, eventually, but then. Uh, O'Grady countersued, and one of the guys was was Keller's buddy. Yeah, this is again like leads to a lot of like the later life sort of rebellion and the fines from Dean Beeman that he contested all the way to the end. Like he he was mistakenly arrested for theft in 1969. Countersues blows up a lot of that kind of rich guy network with this, right? Yeah. With the countersuit against like the rich guy LA network that was willing to back him. And at this point, so then, you know, he's he loses his investors, but also it alienates him. He can't play at Bel Air, Riviera, or LACC. He like then at this point has to just play wherever, you know? He yeah. he lost like, you know, and he had a few people that would let him go play there. Lakeside would let him play um the pro there. Um, the, uh, he claimed that Keller asked him to fail and right. Cause what 
they didn't want to have to pay for him <laughs> to actually make it on tour. Yeah. They just would rather wash out. He yeah. he was he yeah. said this is O'Grady's quote. He was afraid I would succeed and that his group would be bound to sponsor me. I was incarcerated in a pool of avaricious sharks. Avaricious sharks. Avaricious sharks. I mean, that's the the, the whole thing. So many of these articles are just like you let him go. You wind him up and let him go because he was an avid reader and then just would find some words and start, you know, repurposing those words in a Bryson way, almost terminal velocity (laughs) type way. So often continue. He he gets really sick at 22. And at that point, he becomes obsessed with golf. And, and he estimated that he had, or uh, obsessed with books. And at this point, yes, he books. estimated that he had about a fourth grade reading comprehension. But then he just started devouring books. And he, I mean, it became like a staple. Is like he would travel with a, a, bag, a bag of golf clubs and a bag of books. Yeah, and the books would be like the thesaurus, the dictionary, <laughs> and then like of course the poetry books and things like that. He, yeah, he he was a uh, kind of a voracious reader there, and that that's where all these kind of big words in every interview and every book and, or every every article, uh, you know, followed thereafter. Mm-hmm. So. so he gets uh he meets he bumps into this guys Raphael Shapiro and Bob McLennan. McClellan, yeah. Yep. Yep. Who we take his name, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of why he, the, yeah, that's why he became Mac O'Grady. The O'Grady, we should say it's his mom's maiden name. The mom that he, you know, really loved and had a strong relationship and obviously didn't have a great one with his dad. But the McClellan that became Mac was just a, a buddy, right? A, a guy, sort of a backer, an investor, a confidant, guy who gave him work too when he needed work. So they, uh, they, he estimated that they spent, about $250,000 on him over this journey for him to get get to, you know, the PGA Tour. Uh, McClelland eventually, like, bowed out of sponsoring him, and that relationship soured a little bit, and that really hurt him, he felt like. <laughs> um, but, like, you see every single relationship he has, except for with the exception of his, his eventual wife, sours. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh Shapiro owned a restaurant and he would work there in all different aspects. Chef owned a restaurant in Palm Springs too. I like that guy's name. Raphael Shapiro. Yeah. You see why he's his name. He's like an Italian. He has an Italian restaurant. He renamed it. He took the last name Shapiro because (laughs) he said he's always felt like Jewish or felt like kinship with the Jewish faith. Just changed his name. All these guys he's running with. Mac O'Grady changed his name. Raphael Shapiro was named like Raphael Viscusi or something like that. So and that's where, you know, uh, Mac would work as a dish a dishwasher, busboy, and, and sort of became this, I don't know, protege or at least a, a, they had a strong relationship. Shapiro would give him advice and back him, obviously, financially. He played the Asian tour in 77, finished 30th on the, on the money list. And then, but then he missed again, the tour qualifying. And he says that at that point, his game fell apart, completely fell apart. I think I was trying to copy Nicholas's swing, but I couldn't hit the ball 200 yards. I thought my golf career was over. So this gets us to November of 77 and McGlenno has nowhere to go. So he has like no home, no money. 
it's kind of in, incredible, right? Yeah, insane. I mean, he, he turns pro. He's got this network of L.A. rich guys and pros that want to help him. Of course, he kind of burns those bridges, whether by his own actions and temper temperament or not. You know, he does a little Euro tour, a little Asian tour, um, rides his bike. Like, you know, he's riding his bike everywhere. He's jogging everywhere. He's going to Q school like all the time, right? He takes these Greyhound bus to Florida because they weren't in California then. It was Texas and Florida. And he fa- he failed 16 uh-huh. times in 10 years. So it was multiple. It wasn't like the one shot deal where, you know, a lot of us in our 30s are used to just once a year. Um, he said if there were more, he would have failed more times. You know, he would have just kept signing yeah. up and failing. Doing these odd jobs, right? I mean, he's working in like mechanical with the McClellan's like mechanical shop. He's working at the restaurant. I love the one where he worked at the Westwood Memorial Park and Mortuary. Yeah. He put on a suit and pick up the deer departed with and uh, but on the they they like hit wiffle golf balls around the cemetery at night and play football at the cemetery at night. It's kind of amazing. And then November seventy seven. So, so he's, he's this is from the he's SI, got nowhere to go. This is from the SI yeah. piece. Um, so one night he broke into an empty mansion by the seventeenth hole at Bel Air. He stayed there for a month, like a cockroach. He says, slipping away on his bicycle at dawn and returning after nightfall. He would spend his days at the little pitch and putt course at Holmby Park, which is still there. Um, one morning he overslept in the mansion and was nearly caught by the real estate agent showing the place for a few weeks. McGlenno lived sir, uh, sir, I can't surreptitiously in a Malibu beach cottage until, until he again, barely escaped detection. Kind of nuts. So, right? yeah. And that, so then there was a torrential downpour one night in Malibu. McGlenno took cover in the garage of an apartment house in West LA. Oh. On the platform above one of the cars, he noticed a plywood box, a 10-foot by 4-foot by 5-foot, used to store beach furniture and other large items. He moved in, bike and all, and stayed there for a couple months, reading by battery lamp and subsisting on peanut butter sandwiches. The Japanese have a word for a box like that. They call it a hako. If I ever form a corporation, I'll call it Hako Incorporated. Unbelievable. This, beca- this is now mentioned in every every article, every profile written thereafter. It's like the guy who lived in a storage box for a portion of his life in a garage in West L.A. I mean, this is really, I think, where he got really into reading, yes. right? Like, just, just he's got his bike in a storage box and a battery lit lamp. And a ton of books. And peanut butter. That's what he does. And peanut butter. (laughs) (laughs) And this is when when he meets his wife, too. Living in L.A., living in Bel Air on some mansion, then a Malibu beach house, and then a box. It's unbelievable. So how do you meet his wife? Uh, At Rancho, right? On the first tee at Rancho for an LPGA event? Mm -hmm. Fumiko. 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 Yeah. They go on a date. He's immediately in love, you know. And, uh, you know, from there he's got, he got really sick again. And then he yeah, st- she was the one that nursed him back, right? Yeah, she showed up. He showed up on her doorstep, like really sick. And she, you know, they had met and been on a few dates then. And she, like, he just starts living with her for a year as she nurses him back to help. His hako and, didn't have the the necessary supplies for his sickness. I, <laughs> I guess, I guess so. Uh, 
but and then seventy eight, he changes his name to Mac O'Grady, right? So that's the year after, you know, he's he's living in a, a storage cabinet or storage box in a in a garage. He changes to Mac O'Grady, and he felt like he was throwing away all the past. You know, this is he's a new man with his new name. You know, he's very right, very believing of of that, and he he starts uh he gets serious at this point about left handed golf. And he starts taking lessons from Sherry Wilder, a pro in Palm Springs. Um, and after a month and a half, he shot 68 lefty. Um, but he still felt more comfortable swinging righty. So this is how he got putting lefty, swinging righty. Yep, yep. 79, so he's already, like, really... You know, he's pretty accomplished, right? I mean, not a, not accomplished, I shouldn't say. Talented, right? Incredibly talented, really understands, obsessed with the golf swing. 79, he, I don't know, they characterize this as a turning point in his life, right? He discovers Homer Kelly's book, The Golfing Machine. Um, you know, we've talked about this with Clampett, right? The, the Clampett flashlight or whatever that was way back when in, in March or April, whenever we did that. Bryson's you alluded know, book, to it. The book breaks the swing down into 24 components and 144 variations. Now, uh, you know, O'Grady's Morad system, which we'll talk about later, I think has 182,900. Apparently, he knows every single one of them. There's, it just multiplies. There are 13 points and four phases. It just starts to add up, and there's 182,000 variables, which apparently he, all, he knows them all. Uh, so he gets deep into the golfing machine in 1979. You know, the first time I tried to read the book, I threw it down the stairs. I didn't even know what a 90 degree angle was. Famico, his wife told me, you must go see this man. Then it will be a guided struggle, not a blind struggle. And so, uh, Grady spoke with Kelly by phone, ranging up thousands of dollars in long distance calls. And, and finally flew up to Seattle, spent a couple of days with them. And like Kelly, like felt like he'd finally found like the, the ideal sort of pupil for the, for this golfing machine. And, uh, you know, it, it became sort of his, his complete obsession with, with how he approached the golf swing. Uh, 81, he married Fumiko. 80, stayed, 80s you know. when McClellan broke up with him. Oh, what happened there? What? <laughs> I mean, all these relationships <laughs> blow up after a while, except with Fumiko. And, and with, with Homer Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. So yeah. He, he died. McClellan. Uh, so McClellan. Had he lived longer, there would have been a breakup uh, there, I'm sure. Acu- right? Yeah. According to O'Grady, McClellan wrote O'Grady off. He told me I'd been the biggest disappointment of his life. You're such a good player, but you're never going to be great. He, um, he asked me not to come to the factory anymore. He was hurt, but I no longer. Uh, but I was no longer the feeble-minded child. I said, I disagree with you. I only wish I had changed my name to Raphael O'Grady. So in honor of Shapiro instead of McClellan. Yes. The, the what restaurateur who gave, kept, stayed friends with them uh, until later. Um, uh, yeah. So the guy he named himself after no longer was a friend. Uh, 81, he marries Fumiko in Osaka or near Osaka. Uh, but this was now he's on his 16th try at Q school. Just, I mean, we're talking 1981. He's been a pro for what? 10, 10 years. years now. 
he led the qual he led Q school after 36 holes and then he shot back to back 80s in Texas and missed it by four strokes. He was not happy riding the Greyhound bus back. That's that's the other thing. There's the images of him like those bus rides back, right? He takes the bus from California to Texas or Florida every time and it's like all right, the 14th time I failed to get out of Q school. The 15th. You know, the, all these like what he associates more with those failures are like the notes and the mental anguish of riding the Greyhound bus back to uh, off in California. All right, 82. He plays on the European tour, and he get, gets lucky number 17, Q School. Now, the great Did thing he, about that, this is he wrote... That Euro tour, he played 27 straight tournaments. Did you see yeah. that? You go from Tunisia to Sweden to Scotland, and that's where I learned how to play on different grasses. Here's a quote that you'll take with in different weather and in different weather conditions. That's what got me ready for the Q school tournament, which we eventually got through. That's what taught me quote, every dimension of nature's womb. So playing all over 27 straight weeks on Euro European tours, how he learned every dimension of nature's womb. He said, all right. So the Q school. Now this is, it's great. He wrote in his journal, Every night after his, each yeah. of his rounds. So I, maybe yeah. we'll alternate. I'll read one. You read the next one. Oh, I don't have them all. You, you read. I got, I got. Go ahead. All right. Go ahead. Tuesday, first round. I scored a 79, seven over par. I reign in an unprecedented 180th position out of a starting field of 200. I'm in pain now. Somewhat shocked and numb from this opening round, but certainly not despairful. Should I control the ever-perplexing variables of swing mechanics? I believe success, success will be ours before the gun lap of this event has been completed. I say They say patience is a virtue. As I lay in room number 166 of the Encana Lodge on Phillips Highway in Jacksonville, I hope for my sake the cool, collective aura of patience will guide me into successful harbors. I believe, I believe... Wednesday, second round, I scored 76, four over par. The end result continues to indicate I'm not making the grade. I'm sounding depressed. I'd better stop writing. I'm afraid I may write something that will convince me I won't qualify at week's end. Thursday, third round. Well, well, old feeble-minded Big Mac is no longer a French fry. Big Mac shot an under par round of 71 at the TPC to move into 144th position in this tormenting event. I feel better, tranquil somewhat, but I'm still in the doghouse. Where is Cinderella's other shoe? All right, I got Friday. I'll give you a break right. here. Friday, fourth round. Can you believe it? I shot a 66, six under par at Sawgrass and tied the course record. I flew right into 24th position. What a brilliantly executed exaltation of professional judgment, mechanical precision, and psychological execution of poise, courage, and artistic unraveling. Peace reigns over my emotions. The torch of adversity has burned hard and long against my skin for nearly one decade now. It's been a remarkable day, one that will thrill me in my grandpa years ahead. Good night, all. Big Mac is ready for slumber. <laughs> So his mood is changing. He shot a 66. He's about a decade and 16 failures at Q school. I don't have Saturday. Saturday, so, yeah, fifth Saturday. round. 
The comeback from poverty to riches is taking place before my eyes. I scored a 71 today, the third straight under par round for the kid of Los Angeles. My ranking is 10th place. The question remains, can Big Mac find the golden arches? We'll learn tomorrow. Really a lot of McDonald's. What, when did all those McDonald's analogies come in? Go ahead. <laughs> a lot of McDonald's references. Sunday, six rounds. It's all over. Big Mac is in the big, big leagues. It's been a lifelong dream to make it to the majors. Bring out the fruit juices. It's time to celebrate this victorious parade that has taken over one decade to complete. I scored a 73 today. My final ranking was fourth place. A few moments ago, I called Fumiko in Japan to inform her of the long-awaited good news. When she answered the telephone, I couldn't speak. I was crying. So it's 10 years, 16 tries, probably record, right? I mean, I'm not sure that will. Has anyone approached that? I don't think that's the case. They said they thought it would be, you know, a record in terms of persistence and failure and persistence and failure and persistence. I think the 17 times is pretty unbelievable. You know, more so than the years. Um, He he talks about the fourth day. This was Dave Anderson, legendary New York Times writer. He had, he had a, a good story in addition to the Steve Wolf and the Kevin Cook ones. He's like, the fourth day at Sawgrass, the weather changed and like it was blowing 30 miles an hour. Felt like his, his, his year in Europe before then, like had really helped him. And that's when he shot 66 when nobody else broke 75. And he went from 144th to 24th, which he called the greatest jump in the history of golf. So um, He was Ken Duke before Ken Duke. I love the, uh, so this is also from Dave Anderson Sunday. Like he's just hanging on. Like there have been the times like the year before, right? He was, he led and then he shot 80, 80 on back to back days. Uh, he talks about how he's had many deaths and you know, uh, on the, he hold it out of a bunker for birdie on eight. He sank a 10 40 for par. He birdied 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. The one with the green in the middle of a lake. Where chain smokers now are infamously give concerts. Uh, on the 18th tee, he said, I decided to hit a one iron to play it safe, keep it away from the big lake on the left, but I hit it straight into a big bush. I have flashbacks to the European tour trying to qualify for the British Open. I hit my ball into a pop bunker and I hit it 16 <laughs> times in there before I decided to walk off. One of my many deaths. On the first hole of the European Championships at Sunningdale, I took a 14, another death. And now here I was in the bush. It's his last hole of this arduous, what is 144 holes. I was in the bush. I barely got out, but I saved a double bogey for a 71. Or 73. It, you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you, I did, thought that was like... Do you have the McCord story? No. Oh, I don't think so. So McCord uh, earned his tour card the same day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... I had a few cocktails that night, says McCord. This is from the Digest article, um, the Cook article. Yeah. Yeah. I asked I asked Mac to come along, but he said he had something to do. That e- oh, evening, God. O'Grady carried 16 baseball bats onto the TPC course. On each one, written in magic marker, was the date and site of all 16 of his Q school failures. Mac took aim at a tree and proceeded to swing full force at the tree until each bat was shattered. Anderson had this too. I, it's just He says he got him at a sporting goods store on his way home that day and just writes in magic marker. He goes, by the 10th or 11th bat, my arms were aching and I was crying again. Just smashing these bats against a tree. 
Um, should note, he never drank, never smoked. Uh, you know, talk about McCord going out for drinks and what in his journal, he goes, it's time to break out the fruit juices or something yeah. like that. Like he did, he doesn't drink, never smoked, anything like that. Um, it's interesting. I think the, the Wolf article talked about even, even now, neither Fumiko nor Matt can talk about that day without tears. Like, so... You know, I think we just saw DJ, you know, like break down at the Masters. Like so many of these moments happen, right, at major championships or I don't know, it's a Ryder Cup or something like that. Or it's a first win or it's a win after 10 year drought, you know, Jim Herman or something like that. For O'Grady, it really is this just getting it, just getting through Q school is the career kind of pinnacle, career achievement, whatever happened. I think winning even majors after that. Having 10 years and 16 failures in those 10 years, it really feels like that 17th Q school was always going to be the most meaningful moment of his professional golf play, playing career, at least. Because it talks about they can still not talk about that day without tears, his wife. To find out you are right, right to believe in those dreams, nothing in life could be as sweet as that. Yeah, so. uh, in his first year on tour, it, something that kind of resonated with me. He said, I've played so many places around the world during the last 10 years or so. Being on the PGA Tour is like celebrating Christmas every day. Yeah, it was just just getting there became the became the sort of career achievement. So I think he had a great um, he had a great quote about you know, you measure one. It's, he said it was from a philosopher. He also he gave it to Anderson. I'm trying to find it right now. He, he uh, is what he capped his story with. He, it's like the pain. You can measure one's happiness. Uh, this is what this when he hasn't won on the PGA Tour event yet, but he knows he will. And here's what he said. And when I do, I'm going to go back to the Q school and tell all those guys that your happiness in life is measured by how deep sorrow has cut within you. I mean, that's like a real. He said he got it from a philosopher, or he, but he used it again for the story. I'm going to go back to Q school and tell those guys that your happiness in life is measured by how deep sorrow has cut within you. And he gave that on his first year on tour to Dave Anderson. I think this um, this ties actually to DJ winning and, and being so teared up is like he yeah. would that wouldn't have been such an emotional win for DJ had it not like had he not have so many major championships like, you know, just blow up in his face. Right. Like that, right. that's what makes it mean more. It's like when you just kind of like glide your way in and win right away. It it doesn't mean as much as them when you struggle along the way to get there. Yeah. Yep. Um. All right. Should we talk about making his tour debut? Yeah. Yeah. So Homer Kelly, by the way, died eighty three. Right. Mm-hmm. His first his first full year on tour. You know he's. So that was kind of a big blow. But yeah, his first year, he gets out on tour. He doesn't want to play the first event, right? Mm-hmm. The, I think it was a Tucson Open with his card because the next event is the LA Open at Rancho because uh, Riviera's having the PGA yeah. 83. So he decides to play at Rancho. Patricia, Patricia Lane. Yeah, the sentimentality of like, like you guys don't even understand like the meaning behind all this, you know, Shapiro would tell us. Um, but go ahead. Uh, his first year, See, he played or, played a great. He opens with four straight birdies, right? Yeah, he opens with four straight birdies. Plays a great round. Um, I think he shot sixty-seven. I I don't have it written down. Um, might have been sixty-six, something like that. He yeah. runs into his friend John Hayes, who is the pro at Lakeside. 
and um, he who let him play all the time, and uh, that uh, he died later that day. Yeah. He talks about how this kind of threw him off for the rest of the tournament or the rest of the Open. I imagine it would. It was like, yeah. you know, like this guy it was the guy that welcomed his arms when, when uh, yeah. and that he died on the golf course. Yeah, yeah. He, O'Grady kind of portrays it as like they literally took a fork in the road or the golf course. You know, O'Grady went one way. You know, Hayes must have gone another way and passed away. Died from a heart attack at the, at the tournament. And O'Grady had been playing well in his first pro event and kind of, you know, receded certainly after that. Um, what else about his first year? Homer you know I mean? Kelly dies. His, his quote is, yep. um, f- it, it was a few weeks after the LA open for 20 years. I yeah. had been marooned on an Island of ignorance. <laughs> that book got, got the clay out of my ears and lifted the veil from my eyes. <laughs> his best finish was a tie for third at the heritage. And it's, I love marooned on an island of ignorance. There's a lot of them that are like that. Marooned on an island of ignorance is a good all-time one. quote. Uh, I might have to use uh, that at is, some point. <laughs> Nature's womb. You should get that one in your in your arsenal as well. Uh, his best finish his first year was a third, tied for third at the Heritage Hilton Head, uh, which he led after through two rounds. But that was also where he first entered the national spotlight. Yes. Did you get this? Yes. Which was televising the tournament, fell in love with O'Grady. At one point, the, he called over a cameraman who was following him. At first, the cameraman thought he was going to be chastised for getting in O'Grady's way, but Max said, I want you to know you can get as close as you want. You can take shots in front of my nose, between my legs, whatever you want to do. People should know my story of perseverance and how it's steeped in the American traditions of freedom and justice handed down by Franklin and Jefferson. <laughs> I mean, that's. That's like Bryson invoking, you know, Newton and George Washington and things like that. I mean, it's it's an incredible story of perseverance, right? Sixteen times Q school, living in a garage box, and all that. But like, well, I I will say this quote kind of leads his. He really believed in the the his, free, his freedom with his fight with Beeman. I know. <laughs> it kind of like uh, is a foreboding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you see this? Yeah, freedom of speech, freedom of, you know, Beeman being used as a totalitarian figure and all that stuff. But go ahead. He ke- so he keeps his card. He has a decent first year on tour. But did you see yeah. that he was uh, the, the, his perpetual search for the perfect caddy? Yes. Yes. He told Golf yeah, Magazine just- that he would welcome applications from qualified convicts. Because he says he feels an identification with those kinds of guys who've had it tough. He was besieged with inquiries. One hopeful wrote, I will be leaving the pen in February and would love to go to work for you. I've played golf for eight years and can shoot in the high 70s. I was a farmer for 10 years, so I'm plenty strong enough to carry your bag. I could read the greens on the worst of courses. Thank you, Sid. Ex-con. P.S. Having an ex-con carrying your bag will draw as many people to the tournament as Jack N. Jack Nicholas. O'Grady was tempted, but PGA officials discouraged the idea. I hate that they. That was another thing that made him sort of famous or drew the national spotlight. It was this call for ex-cons to apply to be his caddy. Did you see the one that caddy had in Hawaii? Oh no! Yeah. 
Or, Oda? Yeah, is, it, is this John Oda's dad? I was looking, I looked like, it up. I, it was Jeff. I, I think his name was Jeff Oda. I was Googling, Jeff trying to Oda. figure out if it was a relative. Because he, but then he had a, he had a doctor Oda that was trying to help him with his back in, in Hawaii. He, I wonder if he chose him because of his last name. He's getting rid of caddies left and right. All the, oh. There's one, even in the Steve Wolf one, he talks fired about him. The, the caddy had hired him. Yeah, he's like, I like this caddy, Kevin. He's, he calms me down, but then he fired him like the next week. Jeff Oda, said, said, he was Irish, holding back. Japanese. said he was holding him back as negativity. <laughs> he runs through a lot of caddies. Jeff Oda was a half Irish, half Japanese, perfect match for Mac. Unfortunately, Oda was only 13 years old. <laughs> This perfect match. O'Grady loved him. I was nearly 20, 20 years older, but I was in total awe of him, says O'Grady. He would say, one inch to the right, slightly downhill, and walk away. He had such courage of his convictions. One time, though, he said, this is the best, could go left, could go right, could go straight, and walked away. <laughs> and O'Grady says he broke up laughing. He had his best showing of the year in Hawaii. Finished tied for third and made eight, 13th and made uh, eight grand. So, yeah, the caddy thing was a great sort of quirk. Did you see the stuff about agents? Uh, no, he just never wanted an agent, right? Because they thought he'd parade him around like a circus act. <laughs> yeah. and they, you know. So, like, agents were, like, trying to line up because this guy is so marketable. Like, you know, yeah. people love this Not, guy. He's yeah, <laughs> And yeah. they're lining up. Um, so he said, this is his quote, I'm afraid they would have turned me into a freak show. Step right up, see the man who plays with both hands, and went through the qualifying school 17 times. Never signed with an agent. Um, he refused all endorsements and took no money from his students. So he becomes this renowned teacher while he's on right. tour. Like, Gene Littler's going to see him. Like, all these, like, famous golfers. He becomes Seve's coach. Like, and he's on tour. Half the time he's playing, half the time he's giving lessons. But, you know, there there's this group of golfers that believe that Mac O'Grady is a genius. Knows the swing better than, you know, has a rightful claim. I mean, I don't think it's a crazy claim that to say he knows the swing better than anyone else in the world. Um, I love this story. You talk about Littler. Apparently he was on the range and O'Grady was spinning him around in like a desk (laughs) off his desk chair, trying to show him centrifugal force and, I don't know, somebody's like, you walk out there, there's this nut spinning Gene Littler around in a desk chair. And Seve, I think he stayed, Seve was the, that was the longest coach Seve ever had. I think they, it was what he took, he, you know, Ad O'Grady worked with them for like eight or nine years or something. They broke up. It was know, O'Grady's O'Grady best friend, uh, best everyone. friend on tour. Yeah. Seve was. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that, failed you know blew up spectacularly as all O'Grady relationships it said something like he's more neurotic than I am I found a a Brandle article kind of ripping Mac's teaching saying like uh, actually Seve got worse under O'Grady like uh, the shot making the dial a shot is sort of myth making and not true and all that stuff but anyways we're, yeah he's trying to do all this stuff he's playing while also more or less teaching Brandle throwing time. stones uh, yeah. um, uh, a couple other so, things on the wall, go ahead, go ahead. Well, once he got, so he's on tour, and once yeah. he got to tour, his, he had one last dream, and it, it, the he'd be on the last fairway, uh, last hole at the U.S. Open, and O'Grady would have a lead that's comfortable enough for him to hit his last drive left-handed. 
He would so spin he his driver around yeah. and hit it. He, you know, go, hit it left-handed upside down and hit it like 250 in the air. That's what they, that's what's the claim. Yeah, he spins the back. So it's the back of the driver, right? Or it's, it's like inverted. Yeah. And he swings left-handed. Uh, that was his dream. The 18th hole of the U.S. Open, the national championship, and hitting it left-handed. Um, can I just say a couple other things from the Steve Wolf profile while we're sort yeah. of in deep in this one right now? Like, this was the ultimate assignment because it's the Bing Crosby. He's walking Cypress Point, listening to Mac O'Grady talk golf and just use all these. It, it, we recommend, obviously, read the article. He's like, just hole by hole. Um, just, uh, just wavering. Anytime too. you talk. Yeah, yeah. Bogey, double bogey. <laughs> you know, 16, I think he made an eight or something like that. He's like, this is the greatest hole in the world. I'll, like, you know, I'd be happy to play this every day. Yeah, but, uh, by the is... end of the round, he said he never wanted to play the course again. Yes. Uh, this O'Grady hit his tee shot on the rocks and ended up with a double bogey, quote, right into the devil's mouth. It's an honor to play this hole, the number one hole on tour. Fear personified. If I hit 20 balls into the water on 16 at Cyprus, I can still stroll down the fairway in perfect serenity. Um, anytime you talk with them, you'll hear three words you never heard before, says fellow pro Mike Nicolette. O'Grady is liable to babble on, hooking words out of bounds, slicing the language into the trees. But he says things with such abandon that he will stop every once in a while to laugh at himself. So, like, he knows it's, there's a little bit of it, like, he can get carried away. The terminal velocity thing or, or a little... He used proprioception yeah. a lot, which is a Bryson favorite. Um, and then, you know, this wolf, he's just narrating him. He's walking Cypress with him. And the Bing Crosby, as he's shooting, like, 80 or something, <laughs> with Willie McCovey as his, his uh, you know, celebrity partner. You know, on the front side... He pars the first. Second, he resumes his commentary. If I was 100 years old and shooting 150, I'd come back here every day and play. He bogeys the third. He just weaves in the bogeys. I feel like a Saturn V rocket going into geosynchronous orbit. He bogeys the fourth. I'm going through a catatonic, neurosomatic, emotional disorder right now. I'm in total emotional upheaval. Walking down the eighth ferry, he tries to lift up his spirits. The Japanese have a wonderful expression about golf. They say the reason you play badly is because you won't let yourself play badly. I don't. I still don't follow that. If you're afraid to play badly, when the time comes for you to play well, you won't let yourself play well. That's one of the reasons I haven't signed any contracts. I would be so upset right now. I do feel dilapidated, though. He finished with an 80. I'm in an amentaceous state, bewildered, confused. Do you remember all that Romeo and Juliet hearts and flowers stuff about how I love to play this course every day, even if I shot 150? Do you recall all those romantic things I said? Forget them. I never want to play this course again. And he laughs. So it's just, it's like, uh, this is who he was uh, when he was talking to the press. Now, Steve Wolf writes all this up and, you know, he gets furious and says, you know, this is a total misrepresentation. This is not who I am. Like, I never want to talk to you again, kind of thing. All right. That was a 1984. So start of his second full year that that feature came out on tour. In 84, he he had drafted a letter to NASA volunteering his services to the space program. <laughs> and, he, and he wanted to, the media guide, he wanted to list a special interest as molecular biology, but his request was made too late for the media guide. What's the letter to NASA? I'm here if you need me. Yeah, it's basically like I'm here to help. <laughs> One quote I saw in like four or five articles, like everybody took this one. It became part of like the Mac 
O'Grady sort of biography. A wedge shot isn't just a wedge shot, but, quote, a bird flying to the firmaments, outlined against an incandescent sky beginning to fall, gently sashaying back to earth. That was used, like, people, I don't know when and where he gave it, but a lot of writers use that one. That's how he describes a wedge shot. Sashaying. A bird flying to the firmaments. All right. All right. Where do we want to go next? So, Beeman, the Beeman blow up. It happens in 84. At the New Orleans. Then the USF and G Classic. O'Grady get allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) It's very important to say allegedly. Gets in an altercation with a female tournament volunteer where he calls, allegedly calls her a bitch. Um, Yes. So O'Grady is fined by Dean Beeman $1,000 originally. O'Grady is irate. Five hundred. No, no, it started as a thousand. A thousand. Okay. O'Grady's irate. He's denying the claim. Beeman bumps it down to five hundred, and what happens? You know, the next event is the Bob Hope, and he gets deducted from his his earnings. He w- I don't think it was the next event. Uh, well, I think it like it was next year. No, like, yeah, he, it was he yeah, to he, it. They fight about it, and then like hope early next eighty five, like January, or whatever it is, they they just deduct five hundred bucks from his his. Prize and this is where it, the the relationship just goes nuclear. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. he because it just gets taken out of his 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 earnings. He feels like he's been stolen from. He calls Beeman a thief with a capital T. Do you have the full quotes? No, I just have that one. He, he compared him to Hitler at some point. Uh, Dean Beeman is a thief with a capital T. Um, he said, you know, it's authoritarian. It's a it's a violation of like freedom of speech stuff like that. The the, the point, I mean. The point is, like, this was like, it's a fine. It was a cheap fine of our dispute. Like, all he had to do was apologize to the volunteer, right? Yeah. At the, when it started, and instead, <laughs> it's like 1984 turns into like two or three years of just, you know, ends up in federal court. There's lawsuits. <laughs> like, he just, and it's all like it goes back to a lot of it being like misidentified in that theft case. Like, he just had a he had a chance to rebel against authority. All right, uh, I got the quotes go right here. He said, okay. "If anyone should be fined." Uh, if anyone should be fined, Dean Beeman should be fined for taking or garnishing the money out of my tournament earnings. Our problem is we happen to have a commissioner who runs the PGA Tour as if it is his totalitarian, authoritarian system. So then the tour was sending O'Grady notices of intent to punish him for some of his statements. They say he was in cl- claim he was in violation of Article uh, Six of the PGA Tour regulations. This rule, which O'Grady calls the gag rule, prohibits statements to reporters that are critical of official sponsors or courses, which I believe is still in existence. The PGA Tour, uh, yeah, Beeman said the integrity of the PGA Tour and the game of golf itself have been attacked, and I cannot allow one individual to continue such destructive statements without taking serious action. I mean, it just escalated from this (laughs) allegation to $500, just apologize. But no, I mean, McCord talks about, like, 
Gary McCord, who's like really is one of his best friends, at least someone who seemed <laughs> on the same wavelength a little bit. You know, he sued the tour. It was Mac versus Authority, his favorite fight. That's his soup. He wants a father to defy. I think that's what happened with Dean. Someone in authority said, no, you can't do it. And Max said, watch me. Uh, so like $500, you know, they deducted from his check. Could have been it. And it becomes like... The thing he, too... He uses it to rip on Beeman, right? He's defying this gag rule of like, you know, you make the tour or its courses or your players look bad. You talk about it and you compare them to the authoritarian regimes or a thief. That ad, you start the fine becomes more than $500. It leads to $5,000, six weeks suspensions. I mean, at one point it's going to be... You know, 12 weeks suspension. Yeah. They thought it could get him for three months and $12,000 fine. It just and was back and forth pissing me. All the play, but. a lot of the players were behind him at the beginning of it because, you know, yeah. like, they really thought it was wrong that they took the money out of his earnings. Like, that pissed like a lot of Crenshaw, yeah. some of these, like, General Ben, mm-hmm. right? This gentleman that people respected. Uh, was behind Mac. They just like you're going about a little too aggressively, but yeah, the, you're doing. I, we're behind. And you. then how long it run run ran on? Right. Ru- right. That's where then they turned against him. Then they were like, "What right. are you doing?" You know. Um. So he just he just continued to. He, it gets to federal court, and, <laughs> and so this is from I think that New York or the um. This is from the Digest article. The scandal ended with a whimper. While dismissing O'Grady's lawsuit against Beeman uh, and the tour, a federal judge scolded the plaintiff. Mr. O'Grady would be would better serve himself by polishing his clubs and his golfing skills and leave off his temptation for verbal engagements. In the end, O'Grady paid the $5,000 fine. <laughs> it was a $5,000 fine, and he was on a year probation and that's important five weeks how many how long was it six weeks six weeks six weeks that was the year probation because like people are like oh he's you know he's falling into line for yeah and people think oh it's all good they've mended fences but that is not the case at all so he behaves for his year of probation is that what you're saying or i mean at least he's not calling you know him authoritarian or anything he also ripped jim colbert do you remember that? Yes. Like we that's a well, press G- pass G- flashlight or flashback or Well Jim Colbert ripped him. Oh, that's so right. So I have it that's here. Right. I had that. Let me find it. Colbert he said Colbert's like not as wealthy as he seems or he's broke and he, I, there was he makes bad golf courses or something like that in Las Vegas. So Colbert said I'm speaking for myself as a golfer and not a member of the policy board. I know it's very hard on uh, for Mac during these times, but we golfers are not happy with the press we are getting. It's not good for any of us. All of us hope that Mac will straighten out soon. Personally, I disagree with what he says. I don't feel he should make personal attacks on the commissioner, who I feel is the best commissioner in any sport. Um, sounds like PGA Tour article. Of- uh, there was some dissension there. Yeah. Like Peter Jacobson, it's like Dean's like out of line. Like not Beeman wasn't like, you know, loved by everybody. Colbert so. might have been the Prince of Edra then. He took a run at Fincham too. You see O'Grady? Like Fincham I didn't see he was that. pissed. Oh yeah. Because they were like taking some small town event at Sutton, Massachusetts at like Pleasant Valley. It was like earlier late nineties, something like that. He goes, Fincham, he's like the little man wants to make it a global tour. 
kind of thing. They're, they're like they're cutting out. So he he Beeman wasn't the only target, the only commissioner that that took shots. The end of the Colbert quote's great. He says, "We're all better off. I own three golf courses, including San Dimas Canyon, and a couple of homes." We've got something good going, and we'd like to keep it going. I don't think anyone benefits by what Mac is doing. It's like, like quintessential, don't rock the boat, because everything's yeah. going great for me. Yeah. But again, the whole point is like, this is a minor thing that some at New Orleans that becomes like three years. He's in front of like three-man policy boards, federal courts. He uses the year to just trash Beeman in every which way he can, and like... Two years, two years, three. Yeah, because at eighty six Riv, it's still going on. Eighty six LA Open. This is you know eighty four New Orleans is where it started, and he refuses to talk to reporters because of the the Steve Wolf article. But like everybody's still talking about this Beeman thing. The Beeman thing is still the center of attention. It just follows him around everywhere, and this is where he goes incendiary on Riviera. This former yeah. home course for like where a lot of his early investors remember his hometown yeah, event. He, he just goes. He was a junior member go, for a second. Goes right? nuclear a, on Riviera. Rick, Rick Riley article I have, you know, hottest player. Uh, he was talking about the tour was being way down, right? Like they just didn't have a lot of star power. Jack was on the way out or was out almost. I got this from an LA Masters. times article. Okay. Okay. I have Rick Riley, 1986, uh, you know, it just O'Grady may have something to say when he chose to speak, but most of the time he's publicly likening Beeman to Hitler and railing against the tour for giving too much money to charity and not enough for him. For good measure, Mac the Knife cut up historic Riviera, site of last week's LA Open, calling it, quote, a cheap public course and a good runway for LAX, all of which made you wonder if Mac wasn't starting to lose a bit of his luggage. Mac O'Grady says Johnny Miller is dial a shot. He can hit the ball as far as he wants. He can hit a six iron. It was the best win I've ever seen on tour. I, I don't know why that bakes in. You got more Riviera yeah. quotes you want Said, to throw out? Ri- good runway? Riviera is no longer the course it was when Hogan and Sneed were romancing about it, uh, romancing it, and it was one of the great courses. Since the Barranca is gone and the trees were neglected for years and they have about and they have about five thousand members, it's like a cheap public course. That's where it, that it goes. Riviera was once great, really great, but today it would make a good runway for LAX. Uh, on Riviera's greens, he said to at least Riley, like like putting over a waffle iron. Do you have that in there? He said, he said yeah, he did not like the green. He said in this LA Times when he said it was like putting down a cobblestone road today. Might as well uh, had walnuts in my line. This more anecdote, more stories from the Rick Riley. O'Grady doesn't make appearances in the press tent. He quote, "I do it to embarrass Beeman." Uh, he goes on, on Beeman. He goes, "I told Dean I'm going to rip you every chance I get. You think you're above the game? You think you're above the Bill of Rights?" <laughs> <laughs> on the tour's top pros, I told them if I didn't start getting some support, I would start going after them. Uh, let me tell you something about Jim Colbert. He owns all these golf carses, homes, and cars. Take a look at Colbert's record. He hasn't won enough to own all of those things. So basically saying he's a fraud. I don't want to say he's a crook, but there are some players with better records. It sounds like you do want to say he's a crook. Some players with better records who have won more money but still can't afford what he has. He's one of Dean's yes men. He's Dean's water boy. 
O'Grady even threatened to gas bring 60 minutes into investigate, in which they would be more than happy to. Hello, I'm Andy Rudy. Don't you just say it once? Uh, that's Rick Riley writing. So, uh, but the last thing on O'Grady, he played okay. Yeah. The last thing on his mind, the 86 LA Open, was winning yeah. the LA Open, even though he led by one stroke after 36 holes. He goes, ever so to swing with 250 pound chip on your shoulder. Besides, this is what O'Grady said. There are more important things to win. So, like, you know, he makes his pro debut deliberately at the LA Open. By 86, he's talking about how there are more important things to win after now, a you know, several-year fight with Beam. I want you, everybody to remember all these LA Open comments that he made. Remember all the things he's done to trash the LA Open and Riviera. Because it's going to be important in a future anecdote here. Uh, all right. All right. He wins. So 86, he finally wins. They're finally wins. Quote, he wins the Hartford Open. Greater Hartford Open. I think it was then the Sammy Davis Jr. Hartford yeah. Open. Final right? final round Quo- 62 to win. Shoots 62. Comes Cor- back in a playoff. Beats Roger Maltby in a playoff on Monday. Uh, Do you have his quote? quote <laughs> there are times when you spread your wings and your molecules rise higher than they ever have before. And he wants his quote about winning the Hartford Open. So, uh, I had, so horrible putter, right? Oh, just an horrible. awful, awful putter. In the playoff, he missed a four-footer for birdie. And then Malpey missed, like missed, missed a, th- missed a one, three-footer right? for par. Yeah. That's his, uh, his first one. Uh, kind of amazing, right? It's Sunday 62. The week before, he you blew know? it, too. He was. He finished. Uh, oh yes, good. Yeah. One. What good you one. have the quote? No. It, he so it, Canadian Open. He blows it the week before, and I don't know. He writes a letter at three in the morning after losing at Canadian Open. He goes like, "Dear Mrs. Golf, I don't have the letter. Or the quotes from it. He's like, I I don't know why you like. Why am I? Why do I put up with you anymore? He's writing a letter to Golf, Mrs. Golf. This gets back to the journaling, which we kind of read from Q School and all that. So. Uh, but he's, you know, really down and despondent after losing the Canadian Open and then wins with the 62, the next uh, final round 62 at Hartford the next week. So, yeah. That's his first pro win. First of two. Yeah. And it comes during a year. I mean, you know, as Riley put it, he's one of the hottest players on tour. You know, the Dean Beeman stuff is just raging and he's kind of a headliner. Um, it's, so the next right, year, there's some controversy. Um, he's returning as the defending champion, but he doesn't notify the tournament that he's going to come until like, this is Hartford until right? Sunday, Hartford. the Sunday before he doesn't. And at this point they had these eight player shootouts on Tuesdays for $10,000 and he's not included in the, in the shootout, which it's kind of understandable because he didn't commit till Sunday. Right. And yeah. uh yeah. And he's irate yeah. about it. He's going it goes nuclear on the tournament director. So every defending champion is in the shootout everywhere on tour. I expected to be in it when I came here today on Tuesday. If I won the US Open, are you telling me I couldn't play? O'Grady snapped at the former greater Hartford tournament chairman, Ted May Jr. Unbelievable. He didn't commit until like two days before. 
flipped out. The best is that I found this article. I couldn't find the the source the source article, but this longtime yeah. uh, Hartford journalist wrote an article in I think 2017 about his favorite story. And his favorite yep. story, he he was retiring. His favorite story he ever wrote was the profile on Mac O'Grady. Like he was ah. just like spending time with Mac. <laughs> it just talks about yeah. how is the he was the greatest champion ever of the Creator Heart for Open, and like forever he will always follow Mac O'Grady with interest wherever he goes. You know, it's just like kind yeah. of like it, it, You know, this guy was the ultimate. You know, like 1980s, yes. 90s golf journalist catnip. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the quotes are just amazing. Um, so you want to go to the second win? Yeah. It's out of 86. 87, he wins the Tournament of Champions at La Costa. Well, one, of the, one of the last thing about Beeman Fine, yeah. O'Grady would pay his caddies incredibly well. Oh, yeah. He would tip him $500. So, like, the amount of money he got fined originally amounted to a caddy's tip. And that was one thing. He yeah. paid his caddies extraordinarily well. He was super generous. Yeah. In addition to never taking money for a lot of stuff, like teaching or not doing any endorsements. So, like, the money was, was not the priority. Um, all right. So, 1987 gets his second win early. The TOC, Tournament Champions, the Costa. Shot 65, 72, eh, whatever, 278. He edged Rick Fair by a shot and Greg Norman and Mal Kalkovecchia uh, by two uh, to win the second tournament of his rapidly, this is Jaime Diaz, rapidly improving career. Um, he cruised around La Costa's 6,900 layout with little more than a one iron and a wedge. So smoking the ball. But the shakiness of his left-handed putting stroke, putting stroke, and the fear of heel prints on the rain-softened <laughs> greens were so acute that he found an abundance of ways to convey his feelings. It was like having teeth pulled without Novocaine. I thought if I touched the ball, it was going to go off like a grenade. Fear is just rampaging through your imagination. My conscious mind was hemorrhaging. Those are his quotes about trying to putt left-handed uh, and on the soft greens. His strong reaction to stimuli uh, is elevate. Yeah, the, <laughs> explains in large measure his ill-advised and recently aborted lawsuit against Commissioner Dean Beeman. Uh, that we just went through all that. There's a quote though from Tom Kite in this. There isn't anyone out here who thinks he handled it properly. That's all says Tom Kite about the Beeman. <laughs> Did you see the one that golf is like a to uh, said in summary said oh great golf is like a sword. One moment is crowning yeah. you king, the next moment is lacerating you. Yes. Yes. He said, Physically, he said, he said that he contends all pros would admit to similar feelings if they were honest. He said of the soft footing on the wet course was giving him an unpredictable launch frame. The resulting vestibular ocular response, he said was causing him to bypass proprioception and to activate unwanted contractions in his distal muscles. Talk about panic anxiety, said O'Grady. If the ground stays soft, I'm dead. <laughs> but this is where you get a, a few, some of the praise, like, you know, Crenshaw <laughs> said, Max physical attributes are astounding. He has hit some of the greatest shots ever seen on the PGA Tour. Um, 
physically, O'Grady said, I, I feel like I'm still in junior high. So, I mean, he was a rookie at 31. He's now 87. He's 35. He's playing some of the better golf. But, like, did you, you know. Did the, you see the anecdote the that yips. he would sprint from shot to sp- shot? Yeah. He would run from shot yeah. to shot. Yeah. 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 Oh, here's the quote. You know, O'Grady says after the final round of the Canadian Open last year, at 3 a.m., I wrote a letter. It started, Dear Mrs. Golf, I hate you. Why do you continue to mutilate me with these merciless acts? I stopped crying and went at Hartford. Um, so uh, he also credits Seve after in this TOC yeah. article. Uh, in the nick of time, O'Grady applied a lesson from the great sage Seve Ballesteros, who, you know, Ballesteros relied on O'Grady's teaching too. I once asked Seve, what do you do when the atrocities start to eventuate? Seve said, there's only one answer to that, and it is very hard to understand. Not everybody can understand it. You just have to forget it. That's it. In other words, O'Grady's words, enterograde amnesia, forgetting something immediately. So that's from the Jaime Diaz. There was a New York Times write-up of this as well that I read, his win at the Tournament of Champions. He goes, quote, Walking off the 12th, I needed to have enterograde amnesia, he said. That's quick forgetting. And the writer of the New York Times goes, actually, enterograde amnesia is the term sometimes used for short-lived loss of memory, such as the blackout of a few hours suffered by alcoholics. Was so, that Gordon White? I mean, that's like a, Was that Gordon White? Yes, oh. yes, yes. So that's a sort of kind of terminal velocity type correction in real time that the New York Times will actually do on, on the interrograde amnesia quote. You, you uh, know, something yeah. I found on yeah. this tournament was on Wednesday after he shoots the lower round, he shoots 65. He's tied for the lead with Calcavecchia. He says, um, he said the course favors the long hitters like him. He said all players except Greg Norman's are, Norman are pretenders at the $500,000 tournament of champions. Said, so don't be surprised if Fred Astaire is doing the tap dance at the end of the picture. Greg Norman will get the girl at the end, I promise you. And then he wins. Yeah. Said his own round possessed, quote, a special aura that takes over and illuminates. Sometimes you learn that the golf club moves you and not vice versa. <laughs> you Did you say what happened, like the eighth and the ninth, like the sequence of events? No, I mean, he had like a <laughs> it's, multiple... He had a multiple three putts, like just bleeding. I had the blow All by right. blow in here so somewhere. He started the day leading Fair, Rick Fair, by one, and Norman yeah. and Mahaffey by two. On the ninth, he missed a three footer that would have given him a three shot lead. And he three putted from eight feet on the tenth. After he three putted from fourteen feet on the twelfth, he was tied with Kalkovecchia and only a stroke ahead of Norman and Fair. And that's when he applied the Sevi Sevi advice, the great sage advice from Sevi. Anterograde amnesia. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a. Uh, it was the soft greens. I love that because I'm dead. It's like the putter is hitting a grenade every time it touches the ball. So uh, the putter, I mean, this is the theme of his, his, you know, entire career, right? He just can't putt. He can't putt for shit. And, and, and but he like doesn't believe problem. he's a bad putter. I know. That's the thing. He thinks he's a good putter. I mean, he, I mean, he thinks that he, he, this is like the lead of the story. He thinks that the footprints, like everybody's going through the same thing with the footprints. 
And this is the, where people talk is... about like his mental, like he's he's brilliant. I, I think there's a fair quote here, because um, uh, he says. I mean, so people think he's go gone ahead. off the. There are quite a few players who feel Mac has gone off the deep end. Said Fair. I don't. He's a brilliant guy, and it might be harder for him to play golf than someone who's not so bright. I know my mental images aren't as colorful as Max. I don't think anyone's are. So it's like it's like that idea of like you either got to be really dumb or really smart to play really good golf. Right. I mean, even even. I mean, Kevin Cook, the the Digest article, right? He goes, he calls him putts with the putter. I mean, Keller, like even in the early days, there was never a three-footer that Phil McGlano couldn't miss kind of thing. It's just like, I don't know. He he claims the whole left-handed thing was, was by design, and other people saw it as a crutch and just a bad one. Um, what he talked about is activating both sides of his brain by putting left-handed. He goes, I use, I, I use a different hemisphere of my brain. The right half controls your left side. And putting left handed is better for someone whose right eye is dominant because your right eye looks down the line to the hole. If you put right handed with dominant right eye, you'll line up three balls to the right of the hole. <laughs> Did you see the quote about he's living in like a ten dimension? He's ten D. Like talk about I mean, like there's your a, third every so like I think one thing uh, just about O'Grady, anywhere you go, yeah. you find a new story, a new quote. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Like I could, this thing could be three hours long if we just kept going. If we kept going down the rabbit hole, my friend Raphael tells me that physicists look at the world in three dimensions, but I have ten dimensions. He calls me ten D. God, that's so like that's like uh, like uh, Bryson's third deviation. I mean, that was like early. That was like nineteen eighty three. He said that. So, uh, all right, where should we go next? We got his two wins. That's his. Those are his wins. Toc and the Hartford. Do you want to go to eighty eight where he he gets off? Uh, he gets off probation. Yeah. Oh, one thing we should say. Eighty seven. Nineteen eighty seven Olympic. Yeah. Oh, U.S. Right? Open. This is good. Right. He's at the U.S. Open and someone shouts. He's tied for the lead on the fifteenth hole. Is that right? Hey, Mac, you're tied for the lead. Mac O'Grady was winning the U.S. Open. He on made a Sunday. final charge catch. Sunday, final round charge to catch Tom Watson, Scott Simpson, Seve at uh, Olympic. For about one minute, O'Grady was the hottest player in golf. Then a fan shouted the score. Mac, you're tied for the lead. He hesitated, <laughs> and he started crying on the 15th tee. Right, and blew it. I think he, that was T nine. Yeah, finished T nine. He was T9. leading to T nine. He started thinking about, I don't know what the explanation I, I was. Got, he started thinking about winning his national championship. I've got and a he quote. Crying. I've got a quote yeah. uh, from an LA Times article. Um, O'Grady almost retired in last year's Open at the Olympic. He was close to the lead with four holes to play, but finished tied, ninth, tied for ninth, closing with three bogeys and a par. This is what O'Grady said. The problem was I started reciting my retirement speech. It's a good one, God. too. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, so that's 87. That was like his, his only even close call at a major, right? He played about like only 13 majors, yeah. three masters, five PGAs. He had only one top 10. It was that T9 at the 87 U.S. Open Olympic. So. All right. All right, eight, wait, probation. He comes off probation. What he comes happens? off probation. Um, so this is an L.A. Times article in 88. Uh, Thomas Bonk, he... 
he, the last time O'Grady and Beeman saw one another, it was the third day of the Players' Championship at Sawgrass, where O'Grady didn't make the cut and vowed never to play another Beeman-inspired TPC course again. <laughs> when they passed within a foot of each other in the clubhouse, each looked the other way while the temperature dropped near freezing. So, this is O'Grady. Um, on what's like his prob- now problem with Beeman. It's the first of two measures that should be administered, O'Grady said. The first one is square grooves. And what is the second measure? Should, play- should the players find a new commissioner? No comment. Should the players <laughs> blow up all the TPC courses? No comment. Should the players start their own union and control it themselves? No comment. You get uh, you get the idea, but O'Grady's real second measure is to ban metal-headed woods too. Why? Square grooves and metal-headed woods have given rise to mediocrity. If you eliminate the metal woods and the square grooves, the rise in mediocrity will fall rapidly, and the little Davids, the little mosquito players who are slaying the giants, will soon vanish. He, you want to do Tiger? He took a shot at Tiger for that, right? Well, because he didn't, he was playing with square, he was playing with the grooves and metal woods. I mean, he kind of like said, Tiger, Tiger isn't Sam Snead, Tiger isn't Jack, Tiger isn't Arnold Palmer because he was using, he didn't have to use woods and, and <laughs> mostly equipment. Uh, the equipment angle was his reason. He, so yeah, he, um, he, he's not done in this, in this article. Yeah, go ahead. Continue. He's off probation. He's going nuts about equipment, TPC courses, no comment. While asking the questions are the comment, right? Should we blow up all the TPC yeah. courses? I mean, there's your comment. So he, he, he says, so he's asked if he expects to hear from Beeman as a result of these new statements. He said, he'll do something. That's all right. If he says, I'm going to fine you 500 bucks, I'll just say, where do you want the check to go? It's so foolish. Blow up the TPC courses. Who'd believe that anyway? <laughs> All right. So what's wrong with the TPC or stadium courses? Two things, O'Grady said. They were all thought of by Dean Beeman. And all the power hitters have no relationship with the courses. You need 30 clubs to play a TPC course, and one of those is a rifle. (laughs) So he finally gets off probation immediately, lays into Beeman. Indirectly, directly, maybe, uh, but dances around it a little bit. Um, So his tiger quotes... I you don't have to. I think we. I yeah. hit on him, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, it's just kind of like he held them to a different standard, a lower standard, because of the modern equipment. So I don't know if that's still the case. That may be inaccurate, but yeah, that was allegedly what he said. Um. Uh. All right. He starts to really wash out because of the nerves, right? The putting, his back is just a mess. He gets he in a fight. UCLA. Did you see the UCLA did a thirty thousand dollar? He commissioned and paid for it. Thirty thousand dollar study to to you know, figure out what's nerves and yips and the results, which he published in the journal of neurology or UCLA did the yips are associated with three factors, advancing age, obsessional thinking, and how long the subjects had played golf. Thus he was perfectly serious in saying the nerve endings in my fingertips are misfiring. So yeah, like that starts to be an issue. Like the putting just was never up to, 
as well as you hit the ball, it'll never up the snuff. His back starts to go poor. What was the fight you're talking about? He gets into a fight. He got in a fight um, at the after the second round of the uh, of the TPC Inatech Classic. Really? At the Swapfast Invitational. I missed that. Walking off the 18th green, O'Grady was confronted by an angry Tom Stickney, whose 18-year-old son, Tommy, had caddied for O'Grady during Thursday's opening round. The father was upset Uh about what he claimed was abusive behavior by O'Grady towards his son. O'Grady kept walking back towards the clubhouse while Stickney blocked his path. O'Grady shoved Stickney out of the way, and tempers erupted. Punches were thrown, and they ended up brawling on the uh, uh, on the ground. <laughs> it's not the only time there were alleged threats to from physical violence. Which we'll, we'll Both sides into, agreed to drop the matter. Um, you know, O'Grady's caddy refuted, said that said that the, the claims that Stickney was making were false, so that, that Stickney's kid only caddied for him Thursday, didn't caddy any, anywhere after. Um, asked if O'Grady would be at Kemper Lakes next week for the PGA Championship. PGA Public Relations Director Sid Wilson said not as a competitor. <laughs> but that's because he didn't qualify. Yeah, yeah. Um. All right. Anything else on his playing career? Um, I got stuff that on his retirement. He's forced to retire ba- at nineteen. Well, the beta blockers. The spine disorder. Well, that yeah. Well, that's after his retirement, <laughs> okay. right? Isn't I that think 94? so. I'm not sure where it is. Forced to retire in nineteen ninety from the spine disorder. You know, he he gained new fame as a school instructor. What did what did he do in his retirement? He goes. He was glad to be finished with golf's quote tin can bureaucrats and dumb ignorant jockocracy that was how he went off went out into the road off into the sunset 1990 so this is right with the there's a big investigation into his fight with the the, the stickney at the swamp ass yeah memphis yeah so beaman writes him a 13 page letter which you know is just doubting o'grady's account of the incident in so so O'Grady writes uh, an aside to Beeman, and this is when he retires. He goes, he 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 says, "Please, Dean, leave me alone." P.S. I've always wanted to tell you this. You bore me. So just Beeman wrote him a thirteen-page letter. Yes. And Max's response was, "Please leave me alone." P.S. I've always wanted to tell you this. You bore me. So he's no longer a playing member, but you know he's going to be around tour as as sort of this this I don't know iconoclast uh, swing guru or, or master of the swing. So, so this is from um, a Orlando Sentinel article. Yeah. Frustrated yep. by the capitalistic and corporate nature of golf and golfers, O'Grady thirty eight vowed he would never return to the fairways. Mac didn't volunteer to return the million dollars he earned on tour as a captive slave of Beeman's, though and this is O'Grady, you dream of being a pro athlete. I've lived that experience and embarrassed to say that I'm being a jock jockocrat and a jockocrat. Jocko Crass, Jococracy. Jococracy. 
Yeah. After he, uh, he used that a lot. <laughs> I saw him in that Roy Firestone YouTube video. He used jackocracy. She sees. Uh, he retires in 90, but he comes back in 91, yeah. right? I mean, Monday qualifies for the LA Open. Do you see his grandiose right? plans upon retirement? No. No. He says he has grandiose plans, including a universal players union and the development of an international world tour. He hopes will put the you-know-what out of business. <laughs> I'd go into detail about O'Grady's players making $10 million a week, juniors paying $50,000 a year for lessons, and Japanese forking out billions to hear his instructional tapes as swing mechanics and Zen life and martial arts discipline. But I'm not sure I understand it all myself. This is the writer of the Sentinel article. 91. He comes back. He Monday qualifies, right, for Riviera. He's inspired. Jaime Diaz earned it up. He goes, he's inspired to start playing after watching 45-year-old Hale Irwin overcome a long slump to win the U.S. Open. O'Grady sought and received the sponsor's exemption to play an international in August. Uh, his back problems flared up again. He Mondays qualifies. He goes, his quote, a lot of people may perceive me as being in the gutter because I'm playing in these qualifiers. If that's true, the gutter is still where water and dirt collect and where growth takes place. You have anything else on that ninety one yeah. comeback? He was he yeah, you went for he went for the sponsors exemption, and he was like, he was just beyond disbelief that he didn't get, get awarded a sponsor invention at the L.A. Open, which yeah, so he didn't Monday into L.A. It was something else, yeah. right? Maybe it was the hope, or okay, so he didn't get a sponsors to L.A. <laughs> yeah, I, he Mondayed into the L.A. at another time. Let me see. Yeah, oh, here it is. It here it is. That rejection in particular has made so this rejection. This is from Diaz article in New York Times. That rejection in particular has made O'Grady wonder if his well-publicized feud with Dean Beeman, the PGA commissioner, could be coming back to haunt him, knocking on doors. I've got my skills, and people know I want to play. I've knocked on the doors, and in a lot of cases, I haven't received even the dignity of a return phone call. Like, I, maybe it was calling Riviera a good runway for LAX, or... You know, yeah, yeah. Your, Waffle iron greens, yeah. Your yeah. feud with uh, all these prominent Riviera men- members, which you like, escalated into a nuclear war. You know, maybe this right. is the reason yeah. that you're not going getting LA uh, open invites. Yeah, a uh, couple other. Should we do some miscellany controversies? I mean, there's the one. Well, can we do I a love... little bit more on his comeback? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. This is what do you got? This is his. Uh, LA Times article. This is when he just like just started his comeback. There's a lot of great Thomas Bonk yeah. uh reporting with yeah. LA's hometown paper. Uh Bonk was the one that said he wanted to enter that BC Open, right? Is Mac O'Grady one and Mac O'Grady two <laughs> so playing is, left and right. This is yeah. this is part of it. As soon as he discovered he discovered he had no pain swinging left handed. He had all this pain righty with his spine. Yeah. Yeah. But lefty he was fine. And that's when he started his comeback. He soon discovered, however, it doesn't bother him when he swings left-handed. O'Grady plays left-handed almost as well as from the right side. He even tried the qualifying school left-handed once. He said he was even going to change his name to Mac O'Grady 2. That would have only been to confuse Beeman. <laughs> This is what he said to Bunk. But I've matured by being away from the game for almost one year. Away from the system. Away from Beeman. 
and away from the voices inside my head that tell me I'm going to push, pull, or miss the putts. I'm going to start making putts because I'm going to stop listening to those voices inside my head. I'm just going to listen to the voice of silence and let my intuition guide me through every hurricane on the putting green. I've got to find the eye in that hurricane. (laughs) One year away, matured. Did you see, speaking of that, like, Seeking I, I out the fight. Him, one year away and away from yeah. Beeman. Beeman and away from <laughs> This is a guy that got compulsive about... about everything. And it was clearly he was compulsive about Beeman. Did you see the Letterman anecdote too? Yes. The fight about Letterman with Letterman. I lost you there. Wi Fi went a little poor. Yes. But, you know, O'Grady, this is, I think, Kevin Cook, the Digest. O'Grady is simply at home when on the Lonesome Edge during his public fight with Beeman. Mac went on David Letterman, naively expecting their chat would be spontaneous. He was annoyed when a producer tried to prepare him and tell him what to say. The producer made the mistake of adding that Letterman dislikes physical contact. So that night, O'Grady kept patting and squeezing <laughs> Letterman's leg to the host's clear discomfort. He's going at David freaking Letterman. Mac later bragged about it and how he'd psyched out David Letterman. How about how this two-time PGA Tour winner is on David Letterman's show? I lost you that. I said, what, how about this two-time PGA Tour winner being on Letterman at all? I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. It's unbelievable. Uh, all right. More controversy. All right. Should we go to 1994? He's uh, this is again. I got I think one Kevin other Cook. thing. He's most. I got one other thing. What? Okay. I got one other thing. Uh, so he's playing in this Utah University Hospital Open in '91. Okay. So he's playing as a righty. <laughs> he started tinkering with a left-handed golf, but it goes back into his left-handed thing. In 1988, he embarrassed some fellow pros in a shootout match, beating the likes of Seve, Fuzzy, and Tom Watson playing left-handed. Wow. I could do it right now, he claims. I don't quite have the same flexibility yet, but I'm getting closer. I need another year. At this point, he's playing a ton of golf left-handed, but when he'd play in pro tournaments, he'd play right-handed because he didn't have the flexibility left-handed to hit it as far as he wanted. So yeah. he's playing a practice round. He showed up late, played, like missed the first few holes with the pro-am guys. Right. <laughs> then like right. he's he was going to play his way in, and he played the last two holes at Willow Creek left-handed to save his aching backs and hit, hit shots that looked every bit as good as his right-handed shot. During this pro-am round, he carried a bag that contained 27 clubs, a full set of right- and left-handed clubs. Well, I mean, that's the anecdote from when he was young, right? McCord? Talking about he saw him up against a tree or something, the rancho, and then there's no way you can get anywhere. And then, like, moments later, from 150 yards away, the ball lands on the green. He goes, I keep a left-handed club in my bag for that purpose. I knew that would happen someday. All right, um, let's go to 94. Right. 94. 
More Kevin Cook. O'Grady seems to be comfortable in the midst of warfare. He made news at the 94 Masters by announcing that, quote, at least seven of the top 30 players in the world used drugs. <laughs> he said they took beta blockers to steady their nerves. Beta blockers are prescription blood pressure drugs that can act as tranquilizers. O'Grady has admitted to using them himself experimentally and said they once helped him beat Tom Watson in a match play event. Um, this, like, really, like, look, a lot of the tour guys abided him, you know, his comments often, uh, even though they rubbed him. This pissed guys off. O'Grady's accusations became public. Norman, Floyd, other, like, immediately called for his ejection from the game. So that was very controversial. Do you have anything else on the beta blockers thing? I mean, I mean, I saw one launching. I forgot which pro it was. There's only one. They said there's only one pro using drugs. It's back. (laughs) He also, he told Beeman that Beeman's sense of honor demanded a formal inquiry into the beta block, beta blocker abuse. (laughs) Your sense of honor demands an inquiry into the beta blocker abuse. Uh, anything else on some of these other 97 U.S. Before... Open qualifier? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, God, we're 25 years into it. He's getting into fights at these, like, I don't even, I think it was a local qualifier. Local qualifier think... at Borrego Springs. And since <laughs> by what he deemed to be poor etiquette of playing partner Graham Reed, a part-time pro golfer, O'Grady alleged challenged Reed to a fight. He challenged the wrong man. Reed, a San Diego lawyer, sent copies of a furious letter to the USGA and PGA Tour authorities citing O'Grady's behavior. Reed alleged O'Grady challenged him a fist fight on the 12th tee. According to Reed, O'Grady became enraged when Reed walked off the green while Kerry Johnston, the third member, friend of O'Grady's, was lining up a two-foot putt. Walking off the green, O'Grady just goes berserk over this. Reed, you know, O'Grady raced after Reed, accused him of trying to distract him. He goes, I admit I made a mistake, says Reed, but I think Kerry could have spoken for himself. Grady, O'Grady uttered the words, I'll fight you on it. I'm a pr- pretty reserved guy, but I know a lot of people would have flattened him right there. This is the lawyer saying that. Says O'Grady, started on the first hole when he didn't mark his ball when I was lining up a putt. Then he walked into my line of view for two holes in a row, pulled the same stuff on Kerry. I couldn't take it anymore. I did it. I did get right in his face. But if there was a fight, if there was a fight, the whole world would know. The guy would be dead. I mean, in the ground. <laughs> O'Grady pauses before adding, "But I don't believe in physical violence. Under no circumstances would I threaten somebody on a golf course." So uh, that's ninety-seven sectional qualifiers. Um, you know, Reed says unquestionably it was my worst day of golf, <laughs> and. Uh, O'Grady, Max says, they let guys in who don't know the game, and I'm a target. Anybody who knows me knows I'm a gentle guy and a traditionalist when it comes to golf. So 1997, still kind of making headlines for, for controversy. All right, where do you want to go? Teaching? Is teaching life? One, one last thing of his playing career. He continued. Okay. He was the last player to use Persimmon Woods in a PGA Tour event, which we have talked about on this podcast before. He used yep. them in the 04, 2004 BC Open on the PGA Tour. <laughs> he used persimmon clubs in 2004. This is after the advent of the of the Pro V1. 2004, yep. he used persimmon clubs. In 2010, he used persimmon clubs in the Australian Senior Open. 
and finished T-fifth. He used clubs from 1970 in the Australian Open, in, or Senior Open. <sighs> finished. Aust- Unbelievable. I mean, he, he we talked about the equipment with Tiger, right? And so there was a 2013 Michael Bamberger article. He's still like, oh, great, he's still on the range, right? Teaching, he's still around. He was Humana, which was Palm Springs. He, he allegedly splits his time now between Palm Springs and Japan. I hear that he's over in Japan a lot with his wife. Um, but Bamberger caught him there. He goes, uh, in 1980s, he used a driver made of a persimmon steel shaft, a lot of cover. He was considered one of the tour's beautiful swinners. Last week, he was at the Humana Watts- watching. Bubba Watson's slash, O'Grady says, was born in his equipment. A graphite shaft, a driver with a massive titanium head, and a hard ball with a plastic cover. Quote, if Bubba Watson had to play with the old equipment, he'd be caddying or shining shoes. The modern slashing swing offends O'Grady. Stallings, I guess Scott Stallings, maybe played the par four with the 18 with a driver six iron, made bogey to miss playoff. That's not being in control of your golf ball. Control of your golf ball uh, used to be what it was all about. And O'Grady's swing loyalties are to Sam Snead, a swinger if there ever was one. O'Grady's friend Ken Venturi had similar similar devotion uh, to the way Nelson swung the club. So it's just this real sort of devotion to the old equipment, Snead, Nelson, Venturi. And Bubba apparently like, I mean, come on. Bubba is a, like a completely unique character. Right? It's, it's, he's an original, but yeah, he, he says it's all the equipment there. Shining shoes or caddying. All right, should we dovetail into the teaching sure. a little bit? Let's let's go. Let's get this out of here. Knock this out. <laughs> Getting close I to mean, two hours here. He's intense about it. Let's. Just, I mean, let's, Grant Wait was a subject of his. Yeah. Um, but Wait, like, you know, he goes understanding the swing and understanding how to play maybe two different things. He's talking about how you know he didn't win a lot, right? Uh, he's a genius, but, but suspects he lacks a certain golf instincts. Whatever allows Mojo allows Nicholas or Tiger to forget all he knows of the swing mechanics and just hit it. Um, you know, they would say Mac didn't have that. He knew everything about the swing, but he didn't have that. While well, Grady weighs 187,200 variables. Um, he was incredibly, he's incredibly territorial, as you can imagine, about A, his, his pupils, his swing thoughts, his swing theories, his competitors. His Morad um, system. The Morad, the more I love that. The website is amazing. It's just like three paragraphs of text that just that doesn't lead you anywhere. It's probably put up there in 2001 and this hasn't been changed. But O'Grady temporarily cut off lifelong pal Gary McCord for speaking to David Frost because David Frost was a student of David Ledbetter, whom O'Grady mistrusted and accused of stealing his ideas. So he just, I mean, it was as sudden as a freeze as. Free, it was a sudden a freeze as the time when past student Jody Mudd got cut off after he thanked Beeman on TV. Boom, gone. So even his pupils, like you need to, uh, there's much more. You need to stay on the straight and narrow. Yeah, uh, the lead better. Thing you couldn't is, even is talk intense. to people like the the Frost story. The you know, yeah. it's, it's just unbelievable. There's all these guys who fell out of favor. He he was the longest teacher of Sevi, but then that even fell out of favor. Ballesteros was frozen out for fraternizing with enemies. How bitter was the spat? Mac called Sevi emotionally bankrupt and said he would never be good again. Quote, Sevi is a collapsed star, a black hole. 
Kind of. So it's intense. Should we go? Uh, you have anything else on the territorialness of it? I, I mean, mean, the Ledbetter thing was particularly acute. So like there are, there were like extreme success stories, though. People would be like, I yes. spent one day on the range with him and he I've never swung better, you know, and a couple of like star pupils. He he apparently turned around VJ Singh, which we didn't. We didn't. I, I want to dive back in and see if that's in any of the spotlight research. Uh, Elkington was another one. Obviously, Sevy. Chip back. Yeah, chip back. I mean, the, so he had a ton of uh, of success. Yeah. Um, look, another quote: "You can't talk to a Ledbetter guy. You can't teach people he doesn't like. It puts you on probation. Um, you have to give back all the computer printouts of your swing and all the positions." Yeah. You can't say the word Morad or swing his way for 30 days if, if you know, you piss him off. Or run the wrong <laughs> he way. eventually freezes um, up McCord, too. Yeah. that's what I mean, that's because he was talking to David Frost. Some of the good stuff, a pro who fell under his spell watched one of O'Grady's favorite tricks. He dropped the ball on the sidewalk, pointed to a bathroom door 100 yards away, and hit a screaming three-wood through the door. Quote, and I mean through the door, says the pro, a veneer door, and he knocked a hole in it. Um, he allegedly loves to like do running shots right you can do running like call call cut call fade while he's on the run you throw him a ball he can do all he's like an amazing obvious talent total control um you know i this is mccord i'd say mac did really well for a guy who couldn't putt at all he was never a great rights player either he was so powerful he couldn't slow the club down but for mac playing the game is not what's important and this gets to the teaching aspect his quest means more than trying to make five footers to go in. He's on an information siege. He wants to make the swing give up its secrets. And that's what he's trying to do, you know, continued to try to do as, as a instructor of sorts. Um, like even D- Digest, like recently, they had to like withhold like the names of his current disciples to protect their access to Mac because he wasn't want any media coverage of any kind. Um, some guys watch through bootleg videos. You know, this Morad project is like decades old. Decades. It's part of his uh, his book, The Golfing Prophet. Digest. Digest stopped ranking him because we couldn't verify whether he gives lessons anymore. He was long ranked him on the top, whatever. But they, they described him as a cross between Ben Hogan and Bobby Fisher. You know, I, I, was, um, texting, I was texting book? with Shackelford, and he said that he, he yeah. took a couple lessons from, uh, from really? yeah, Mac. Back in the day. Wow. Wow. Uh, in the 80s, seven of the world's top 25 players were his disciples in the 80s. So he abhors self-promotion, pr- preferring a pure pursuit of golf per- perfection. So he just spends like, I think it's said over 150 grand on his own money on this Morad project, which is still, you know, it's to crack the game's code. Um, but, you know, still waiting on that. Um, I gotta find. I I had a, an article with all of his uh, all of his books pulled up, but now I, now I don't have them. Have it. it. He he rates every swing on like a hundred on a scale of one hundred. Like Davis Love the Third gets about a ninety two on his scale. Uh, Mac Macolites, as they call some of his disciples, were like higher. You know, Sam Sweet S- Sam Sneed swing. They said was a near perfect ninety nine on uh, O'Grady's scale. Um, the two questions that remain of Morad locked away where only the highly suspicious and controlling Grady has the answers. Qu- will it ever be published? And if so, will anyone be able to understand it? 
Oh. I mean, all right. Go ahead. I found this. All right. So he's been in retirement. This is a um, Hartford current. This is when Mac O'Grady returns to play the 91 Hartford Open. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've just got to read the lead here. During the writing okay. of it, H. Uh, Henry P.P. Fansworth horned in on one of Mac O'Grady's recently completed books. He grabbed the typewriter out of Mac's lap and put it in his own uh, and started writing. And when he had finished the last nine chapters of The Golfing Prophet, he had taken O'Grady apart, blasted him. He tells me off, tells me how irresponsible I've been, just hammers me, O'Grady says. The 1986 GHO champion is back in Cromwell again, and HPP Fansworth is with him. The fact is, HPP Fansworth is him. He is O'Grady's alter ego, the other Mac, which is absolutely in character. All of the unusual, complex things that couldn't be contained in merely one man. That's HPP Fansworth? HPP is Farnsworth or Fansworth? Fansworth. Let me let me find. He goes into the Fansworth uh, is what the alter ego, kind of unbelievable. Should I give a little bit more on Morad? Yeah, real quick. You want to get? I got more. I got a little bit more on Fansworth. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. So Fansworth is Henry, philosopher, prophet, (laughs) Fansworth. They split their time between Japan and Palm Springs. Him, Famico, and philosopher prophet Fansworth. So Morad is his life work. He does. He probably doesn't even care. They won twice on tour. Like there was emotional achievement to that. It's incredibly complex. The model features ten segments or ideal positions from address through follow through. Each segment has 10 subsections, each of which has a proper position for 13 body parts. Specified in three dimensions, that means 3,900 variables per swing. And you'll find more refinements in O'Grady's sheaves of charts. Every variable optimized for each club, for hooks, draws, fades, and slices, high, low, and medium trajectory. The model contains precisely 187,200 variables and, quote, Mac knows them all, says a doctor familiar with his work. This is still ongoing. Morad's never been published. We just, we know there are, I mean, he, 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 he blames like a little bit of the back trouble of like sitting yeah. and writing a lot of the writing this five work tome. Uh, you know, well, so. he's got five books. He said will be published in Tokyo. This is in 91. The yeah. golfing prophet. This is his favorite of the five books. The others are called The Neuroscience of the Golf Swing, The Biomechanical Template, The Evolution of the Golf Swing in the 20th Century, The Studies of Swings of 30 Top Players, including Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Lee Trevino, and Gary Player, and The Evolution of Tournament Gurus. The last asks the question, who are golf's gurus and where do they come from? The last 155 pages are a critique of David Ledbetter. Known as the golf tourist <laughs> golfing guru. 
He hates Ledbetter. <laughs> hates him. Accuses him of stealing. If you even talk to him, you're out. He's not not a fan of Ledbetter. Um, you know, O'Grady writes other... the first half of this book. Fansworth writes the second half. Oh my But all around, this is an uplifting book, a story about the miracle of being alive. <laughs> uh, on a serious note, like a contemporary says, I believe Mac understands what happens during a golf swing as well as anyone ever on earth. He is never satisfied. He is always refining the model. But at some point, you get to understand, I don't know, what's what's the best way to convey all that. I can't remember where I read this. It was something about like how the books haven't been published or and will they ever be? And one player goes, here's the thing, like nobody edits Mac O'Grady. That's the thing we know. Nobody edits it. And so, you know, at this point, the books will never be published because like nobody's going to edit them. Right. Right. All right. You got anything else you definitely want to get off? I mean, like we said, it could have been three hours. We almost went three hours, it feels like. Uh, there's just so much there. That's, uh, he's, a, he's a unique, original, like, you know, historic character in golf. He's not a Hall of Famer. He's not, you know, Ernie Els or Mark O'Meara or any of these other past spotlights. He's not Frank Stranahan, even, in terms of success. I mean, I think we had a pretty clear argument for Stranahan's inclusion in the Hall of Fame. Um, but why, why did you feel so compelled to, why do why do you think, why did we do this? Why Mac O'Grady? I think like for us, we're in our thirties. We're familiar with the name. We didn't know all the stories. We know he's like this golf, golfing machine, golf sort of understand, trying to understand the science of the swing, but didn't know a lot. Knew there was like beam and tussles, but he was a little before our time. I guess I just try to always, while I was researching, try to conceptualize who or what how this could happen now, right? In our current moment, who would do this? Who could call the commissioner a, a, a little know, a Hit- little Hitler? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I was trying to think of that, how this could happen nowadays. But I mean, it was fascinating to look back as in the history of, of this character who came from, you know, storage box and a rough upbringing uh, to being, you know, hailed as one of the, hitting some of the greatest shots PJ Tour has ever seen. So, um, anything else? Nothing else. Nothing legacy? Do you I mean, want to talk about legacy? It's still being written, I yeah, suppose. It's not over yet. Who knows when Mac O'Grady's going to reemerge? I think, I mean, all-time character. That's the thing. Like, it, it's a character that you tell the story of golf. You have to, whether it's the swing, whether it's the tour, uh, whether it's Q School, of course, the 17 tries. Um, I think he's a part of the story of golf and a name, you know, that will live on in, in the annals of, of the game for for that character. I've never uh-huh. seen so many articles written about a man that won two events and played on tour yeah. for five years. Or a two-hour podcast probably is not going to happen on a guy that's won two events. Yeah. I don't Who know. knows? Maybe, maybe, Todd, maybe a podcast interview like will come from this. Somebody will go hunt him down. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't sound like he's eager to talk to anybody, and it's very hard to find. It sounds like the most recent thing I found was like his wife answers the phone, and maybe you'll get through, or maybe you never will. I don't know if you can. I want to go take a golf lesson from him. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Cool. 
I wish we need another Mac O'Grady to come along, but I don't think there ever will be one. I don't think anybody right. will. I think a lot of the things he typified with the tour about the way that speaking out, like it's even worse. Nobody says anything now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have like Kepka, maybe to a certain degree, but that's usually at other pl- other people. I don't know. It's, 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 there's not a lot of rebellious uh, streaks on the tour. So, all right. This lengthy spotlight on Mac O'Grady is brought to you by Rucket. The URL is rucket.com slash shotgun start. We'll be back with a more typical show on Wednesday. Everyone enjoy your Mondays and uh, talk to you soon. (laughs) 